Welcome to the Theology Podcast, and here we are once again, podcasting from West Hartford, Connecticut, at the Corner Punk, right down the street from Colt Firearms, maker of fine handguns and heinous assault rifles, according to Glenn Sunshine. <laughs> and uh, just to let you know, Glenn actually likes those heinous assault rifles and wishes that everyone can have one of his own. But here we are today, uh, and uh, it's Glenn's day, but before we get to Glenn's topic, why don't we introduce ourselves? Tom, why don't you start? Tom Price, a systematic theologian and Christian ethicist, teaching both at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. Glenn? And I'm Glenn Sunshine, professor of early modern history at Central Connecticut State University and senior fellow of the Colson Center for Christian Worldview. And I'm C.R. Wiley, the senior pastor of the Presbyterian Church of Manchester in Manchester, Connecticut, and author of A Household in the War for the Cosmos. And eventually, when I finally get it written, uh, In the House of Tom Bombadil. <laughs> anyway, I see Lynn. I see Glenn's wife coming in, and she's going to join us here. Uh, we may even mic her up. <laughs> anyway, uh, it's great to be with you once again. And... Uh, Today is Glenn's day, and Glenn has an intriguing topic for us. So what are we talking about, Glenn? Um, well, first of all, just a quick note. We're in the main room of the pub again, um, <laughs> because the back room is being used by paying customers. Yeah, what is so, it with this capitalism, this yeah, evil yeah. thing? Well, so, uh, excuse the background noise. <laughs> but the uh, the topic today, I think we could call rehabilitating Machiavelli. Ooh. Um, Machiavelli has this reputation from the prince as being a an advocate of... Machiavellianism. Machiavellianism. Right. Uh, amoral, ruthless, power-grabbing government and those kinds of things. Right. And this is actually... As a historian, I gotta look at this and tell you, you know, I see where you get that, but when you actually look at Machiavelli's biography and read some of his other things beside the prince, always a good idea, uh, you actually get a really different impression on what he's doing. That what he's doing in the prince is a lot more complicated than a lot of people make it out to be. Okay. So to make the history really simple, Florence historically was a republic. Now, republics in the Middle Ages weren't democratic things. There was other systems of representation, republic being simply a government by representation. There were systems built around guilds and things like that. And Florentine history is really messy. Uh, from 1293 to 1434, they had 12 different governments, and I mean 12 different constitutions. Wow. I mean, you know, it, it's really... It's, it's really interesting cool. place to live. Yeah. But, but in 1434, it was, uh, uh, it was taken over, really, by the Medici. And the Medici ran it, uh, while nominally keeping it as a republic, the Medici really ran it as a despotism. They were uh, you know, monarchs, functionally, princes over the city. Well, what ended up happening is, uh, after a while, there was a revolt against that, and as a result, you had a resurgence of a republic. And during that time, Machiavelli actually served in the government of Florence. Um, he was, as it turns out, surprisingly enough, an ardent Republican. <laughs> However, the Florentines ended up being on the wrong side of a war. Hmm. And Florence got occupied, and the Medici were restored to power. Machiavelli was arrested, he was imprisoned, he was tortured, um, and eventually released. But he was never allowed to get position in government or anything like that again. 
And Machiavelli was really trying to find a way of making a living and getting into the good graces of the Medici. So these were the good old days. Yes, these were the good old days. He was trying to get back into the good we graces. We may be getting those back again. But <laughs> they're coming. <laughs> so the, the Prince, if you look right. at the dedication, was really written to suck up to the Medici, to try there to get go. some patronage. That's right. But what, what he's doing in The Prince, when you read it in conjunction with another book that he wrote called The Discourses on Livy, Livy being an old Roman historian. Sure. Um, when you read it in conjunction with that, you really, it, that helps you understand what's <laughs> going on. Yeah. What he is saying, essentially, is that Florence is and ought to be a republic. However, it is a sick republic. It is a republic where the people, in, in order for a republic to exist, you, the people have to have virtue. And Machiavelli had a rather peculiar definition of that, which maybe we'll get into later. But people had to have virtue, but the problem is the people of Florence lacked virtue, and as a result, they were functionally incapable of ruling themselves. Now, now this strikes me as a very Straussian, Leo Strauss sort of thing. Uh, the idea being that with Strauss, what you have is throughout the course of human history, uh, because of very inhospitable political arrangements, you need to speak with a sort of artfulness and, and esoterically to get your message across. Because if you're too direct, you offend the people who can kill you. Yeah, well, there, there, there's definitely something to that. Right. Now, so how, how do you, you know, from Machiavelli's point of view, you're in that situation, you're in a Straussian situation. How do you promote the cause that you believe in without getting beheaded? There you go. Okay. Mm. And, but more to, the, to take that one step further, it's not just promoting the cause that you believe in. It's looking at the situation and realizing that the cause you believe in can't work yes. because there is not sufficient virtue in the society <laughs> to sustain a republic. <laughs> sort of like the world we live in today. <laughs> Gee, I wonder why I might have picked this topic. <laughs> now that you mention it. Okay, so what, what the prince is, in essence, is an argument that says, yeah, you know what? Florence can't rule itself now. We need despotism. Right. And if you're going to do a despotism right, this is what you've got to do. However, in the midst of it, he makes an appeal to them, to the, to the Medici, where he says, in essence, okay, look, you know, as, as a despot, you are out for, for self-aggrandizement, you're out for glory, you're out for all of these kinds of things. Let me give you a hint here. The way you achieve eternal glory, the way you achieve everlasting fame, is develop the institutions that will revitalize the virtue of the people of Florence. And make a despot unnecessary. And, and then when you retire, mm -hmm. you can turn the government over to a fully functioning republic because you built the virtue up in the people and then you'll be remembered forever as yeah. the one who restored the republic. Right, right. That's the way you guarantee eternal glory. In the meantime, while you're in power, yeah, you've gotta be ruthless, you gotta be amoral, you've gotta use the church, you gotta use everything 
to strengthen your hand, to strengthen your power, and you can't afford to let people develop too much virtue. Right, right. But hmm. you allow them to do that. You you work this sort of contradiction here. You don't the the a prince has to have a monopoly of virtue, as as Machiavelli defines the term. Hmm. But at the same time, he's arguing that you need to allow the people to start developing virtue right. so that you can create the republic. So you're not actually looking for a successor, another despot. No. You're, lo you're looking for the, rest the restoration of a way of life. That the, the restoration of the republic, right. right. So the things that I find most intriguing about this is, well, first of all, let, let's go to Machiavelli's concept of virtue. The word virtue comes from the Latin word vir, which means an, a responsible adult male. Yeah. Okay. So virtue literally would translate to something like manliness. What are the characteristics you want in a man, in a leader? Virulence. Virulence, yeah. <laughs> um, so, or virility, maybe. Right, right, so, right, right. so, um, Actually, the weird thing is that the word veer here is cognate to were and werewolf, right, or wolfman. Right, right. um, but, but by the way, I saw a big koi wolf in front of my house today, and it was a scary, it was a scary sight. Oh yeah, middle yeah. of the day. We 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 saw one driving at night once, and it was what the heck was that? Yeah. You know, but but anyway, what. For Machiavelli, interestingly enough, now that we're talking about koi wolves, for Machiavelli, virtue is not the classical concept of virtue, where it's you know courage and self-sacrifice and endurance and and prowess and all that kind of thing. What for Machiavelli it was was sort of almost an animalistic instinct um, to react to events quickly and spontaneously and decisively to move things forward the way you want them to go. It reminds me of something going on today. It does. And, well, interestingly, and of course, more, you know, classical accounts of virtue, it was, it, it, the big emphasis was, it's not, it's not first, what is it right to do? It's, it's what is it right, what is the right thing or what is it good to be? Yeah. Because when one is cultivated in the virtues, one does the right thing because one is, is, has become, in some sense of the word, the right kind of person to do the right kind of thing. This gets us back, to, though, to competing visions of uh, the manly man in antiquity. I, 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 I sum it up as the contrast between um, uh, Jason Veritek mm -hmm. and David Ortiz, two Red Sox, you know, sort of uh, icons. Hmm. And uh, w when I think about David Ortiz, I think of the Homeric hero, shining self sort of absorbed the Achilles, right? You know, it's like, I just hit a home run. I'm watching it, admiring it, as much as anyone in the room. <laughs> and I'm running around the bases knowing that everyone is cheering me, and I'm, I'm, in, I'm, a I'm, I'm in the moment. I, I enjoy the glory. Then Jason Veritek, who would I, I would describe as the, as the Aeneas of the Red Sox. He's dutiful. He just he hits a home run. He's almost embarrassed. <laughs> he runs around the bases with his like, head no, down. Please. That's right. Don't don't cheer me. It's all about the team. It's all about the team. <laughs> so, the, the contrast that I use with heroes is going back to the Marvel movies. Yeah. In the first Avengers movie, there's an argument between Captain America and Iron Man. Yeah. There you go. That fundamentally is about what does it mean to be a hero? Yeah. Let me guess. Aeneas is Captain America. Captain America. Right. Yeah. What what 
what it is is self-sacrifice to Captain America. Yeah, yeah. You know, he says, you know, you're not the kind of guy who would lay down, lay lay down on the wire to let his buddy crawl across your. When well, you think about Tony Stark, and it's Tony about Star the super suit, right? And, and, and so, so Stark is actually, in, in an odd way, Stark is the the ancient hero He's who is all about prowess. Yeah, yeah. Whereas Captain America is what I would describe as the Christian hero who's all about self-sacrifice. Yeah, yeah. Well, you think about Aeneas. You know, it's interesting. In Acts, I can't yeah. remember what is it, chapter four, chapter five, mm -hmm. where a cripple mm -hmm. named Aeneas <laughs> is healed. Now, Aeneas is like, if you're back in the ancient, if you're in the first century and you mention the name Aeneas, we're thinking, you're, you know, everyone's thinking Captain America, right? You know, so it, so we we miss the the significance of this man who's crippled. By the way, Aeneas in the Aeneid is carrying his crippled father on his back out of the Troy, out of Troy, the, the ruins of Troy, the city is burning, he's the hero, he's saving his father. Now in the gospel, or not in the gospel, but in the Acts, here we have a man named Aeneas who can't walk. Who's crippled himself. Who's crippled and is healed by the, by the, the apostles. <laughs> we miss that because we don't know our classical. Right. But, in, yeah. but Aeneas was so popular in the ancient world, there was graffiti about Aeneas. And so this was like, you know, walking down the street and you see graffiti about Captain America. <laughs> you know, because he stood for something that people understood. I've gotten us a little bit off subject, but I think we're right. <laughs> yeah, but, but in, 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 back to Machiavelli. His, his, oh yeah, the topic. Yeah, his, his, his concept of virtue, like I said, is this, this almost animalistic, instinctive, Drive to you know respond spontaneously, quickly. In, you know, in any situation, this this kind of uh, well it, survival instinct that you're going to use to drive yourself forward. That's how he sees virtue. It's a little, it's quite a bit different from the classical concept. Well, but but here's where I uh, let me get completely contemporaneous. Mm -hmm. yeah. Trump. Mm -hmm. Trump. Gee, I wonder why I brought up this time. <laughs> but Trump is the Homeric hero. Mm -hmm. He is completely wrapped up in his own glory. And, uh, and functionally, what I'm hearing you say is Machiavelli would say, okay, that's, that can actually be useful if we understand it not as sort of going on forever, but sort of phasing out. Mm -hmm. If right. you can use this to create a world where the Aeneas character can enter. Right, so, so the, the point would be for Machiavelli that what you really want, you know, it, let, let's make believe we're in a republic. And the re a the, real I, I, republic. That's right, I make believe of that every day. And, and, and this republic is full of people who, the leaders, the people who make decisions are people who lack virtue. And that I know this is a stretch. But <laughs> it's really a stretch when we live in Connecticut. But anyway. But yeah. So, so, so let, let's make believe that's the case. Well, Machiavelli's analysis that when you've got a sick republic, there's something that you, need, you can do and that you need to do to fix it is terribly interesting. It's, an, it's a really intriguing idea yeah. that what you need is somebody to step in to take control of the situation, 
to dictate what's going on, all of those kinds of things, that's the prince, to act with this kind of instinctive, it, it's almost a, a sprezzatura kind of thing, uh, the, this this omnicompetence where you just step in and do things right. almost spontaneously yep. to move things forward. And then while that's happening, it gives you time, it buys you time to develop the institutions that are necessary to rebuild civic virtue. No, my mind is moving in so many directions. Mine too. What, what are you thinking? Okay, and I don't want to take this far off, but it, it, it's a related theme. Um, two articles um, that I've read recently, again, for a class I'm teaching, um, but one of them is uh, William Cavanaugh. Um, you may have run into his sure. work. He, he wrote a, a, a great book on consumerism, and, and, um, but he wrote a, another book called The Myth of Religious Violence. It's a very interesting work. Yeah, I'm but one of his criticisms of, for example, and this, is, this brings it to a more contemporary situation, but one of his criticisms of a Christianity that tries to align itself with sort of the liberal nation state is that the liberal nation state doesn't really have a common good in its best interest. Right. And so therefore, we can waste our time trying to basically, um, as you know, maybe Karl Barth would say, is, you know, giving our support to something that's undermining us in another way. Right. Or we do maybe a Benedict option, we, we, or we live out a counter culture within it, creating virtue, alternative virtues, in, in, in embodying something else. What that protects is a, per, a perversion of a compromised Christianity. I mean, this mm -hmm. is sort of what he's after. And it allows us to live what he would say is fundamentally a peacemaking vision rather than one that, that moves towards the nation state and its, and its forces. Switch to another figure, Ni uh, Nigel Bigger over at Oxford. I've seen him speak many times, and actually he has to hold, he has to hold uh, his seminars in hiding now because he actually defended some of the... the I think I heard about this guy. Yeah, he actually def had to def you know, he was defending certain aspects of the, the, the contemporary humanistic vision with Christian justification. And yeah, he has to go into hiding. But anyway, one of his arguments in Saving the Secular is that there are... When, when there was a certain, uh, well, I was around in Oxford at the time, but in London there was a bombing that happened in the train system. 7-7 um, was the date, I remember. Uh, 2005, I believe. Oh, I remember that. And so the reflections, I was actually supposed to go to the opera the next night and everything was shut down So, in London. Um, but anyway, um, the reflections he had on that was talking about the, the, the moral disgust that was starting to be on the lips of people that saw themselves as doing a just thing and carrying out that attack. Mm. And one of his reflections was, well, if we do any self-reflection, maybe it would be such that we would recognize that the kind of liberalism that has generated is this, cons this, this disgusting sense of self-gratification and this radical consumerism to where there is no actual virtue being developed other than what benefits me and my selfishness and my self-interests. And so therefore, there, any moral purist will find this repulsive and violence may be their only means for carrying it out. He said there's an alternative, which he said is called humane liberalism, which is one that has actually an open door to the contributions of faith and particular Christianity. Stuff like Habermas and some of these other types of figures. Right. And he said, so here you could actually, you, you, could, you could actually, as Christians, contribute to the cultivation of virtue within a society 
um, that actually had higher virtues than radical self-gratification and consumerism, but actually towards these kind of things that would make a society such that, A, it wouldn't lend towards people wanting to react with violence towards the moral disgust, but you would actually be developing moral citizens right. capable of governing themselves and right. being a, a light in the world. So, Interestingly enough, yeah. that vision is articulated in a sense in Augustine City of God. Interesting. Where, yeah. where yeah. you have the city of man and the city of God occupy the same space. They've got totally different visions of the world, totally yeah. different approaches to do it, but they can cooperate That's where to he, produce yeah stability and peace within the society. Yeah. Peace yeah. in the, the very deep sense of the word. Yeah. 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 And it, it you know, it's interesting. You know, Augustine keeps coming up. Right, <laughs> We've right. talked about that right, other thing. Right. I think uh, Nigel Bigger would be very, you know, attuned to that. And I imagine that's driving a lot of his proposal. But I think it was, it, it, you know, the, the reason I brought it up related to that is this kind of sense in which Christian contribution to the kind of virtue formation of a society is a, is a huge question. I mean, a lot of Christians ask, you know, what, what is our role? Is it merely just to be biblical Christians living out our own life, or do we have a, a conversation contribution in which we can take the moral insights that come from the particulars of our faith? and yet also try to impact the, the, the common good of the culture, whether it's received or not, but in a way that, that we, do, we do start to limit the expanse of other evils mm -hmm. by actually having a part in that contribution, or we just kind of opt out and hope that by starving the system, we somehow are contributing. Right, or the, the other option is to be woke. Yeah. And, and when I think about the woke, yeah. essentially what the woke are promoting is, is the, is sort of the, the idea that you know what we need is is equal access to a system that's dying and kills people. Yeah, <laughs> that, that, no, that's, yeah. that's justice in their minds because they're completely obsessed with procedure and have no substantial vision of an of a justice order itself. All they care about is equal access to the things that are killing us. Yes. Yeah. Well, or to put it differently, what they're really looking for is complete cultural surrender. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because because they don't really have a vision of right. the city of God. They right. really don't. They, yeah. they don't have that. They. they yeah, and that, that, that's what we talked about a couple of weeks ago. That the bifurcation of the gospel into the social gospel and the evangelistic gospel means that when people that do evangelistic stuff discover that you know what racism or whatever actually is a gospel issue they completely lost touch with the resources that exist within the Christian tradition for dealing with that issue, and so they just grab the ones that the society is offering. Now, what I'd like to do is jump back to this observation that you made, that, uh, or this theory that you're presenting, however you want to put it, that what Mac Machiavelli was actually up to was, uh, how do you work your way back to a republic? Right. So you find yourself in an environment that's uh, lacking in the moral virtues required to actually have a republic. But you just don't stop living at that moment. You mm -hmm. need to run things, so you need a despot. You need somebody who has, within his purview, the, the authority and power to make things happen. Mm -hmm. But he's trying to work himself out of a job. 
Mm -hmm. At least that's what Machiavelli... Ma that's what Machiavelli wants him to do. Wants him to do. Now, the question I have is, is, is do we have any examples of that happening? <laughs> so if, so if, like, if we think about Augustus in Rome, we think about a man who steps into a situation that's pretty chaotic. He's trying to he's trying to re-legitimate re the Roman order. Mm -hmm. So the Roman order has gone through a pretty significant shift. You know what you had as a republic, and then out of that, because of the growth and its uh, and its expansion, you ended up with multiple centers of power, meaning actual ability to wage war power, mm -hmm. engaged in a fight for a control of the Roman Empire. This all plays itself out. Augustus finds himself in charge, and now he has to reinstitute or sort of reorder things. And this is what leads to his marriage laws. This is what leads to the, the you know, the commissioning of the Aeneid, mm -hmm. you know, right. uh, to create, yeah. you know, a, a, a national myth. Uh, so he's, he's, you could say that he, he's getting, he's got the idea. Yeah, yeah. I, I need to re. I need to reestablish virtue. I need to bring virtue back. Yeah. But did he do it? No, he failed. Right. The the closest thing that I can think of that that comes to that would be actually Washington. I was thinking of Washington. Um, you know, who who could very easily have been named king yeah. if he wanted it. Right. And um, but he accepted two terms and only two terms as president, and then retired because, frankly, he didn't really want the job. Right. With right. the hope that. A functioning republic would allow for a stable succession. Which is why we call him the American Cincinnatus. Right. Yeah, most people don't realize that Cincinnati is named after Washington. Right, yeah. yeah it's one of those little before. obscure things. Yeah. But yeah, um, so it doesn't happen often. It's very rare in history. And in all honesty, I don't know, in the modern world especially, I don't know if it's possible. But if I were going to lay out a program to do it, the question would be what institutions produce virtue? Mm. And I would want to define virtue along classical lines here. Mm -hmm. And what I would suggest in practical terms in the world today would be, oh, you're going to love this, would be small business, mm -hmm. um, productive households, those kinds of things, right. which would produce people who are able to function themselves, who develop the kinds of responsibility, um, self-sacrifice, discipline, all of those kinds of things that make for successful businesses, but that are also the characteristics of people of virtue who can govern themselves. Right. By the way, this is my litmus test, as you can well imagine, <laughs> for legitimacy. So there are certain, there are vast regions of the evangelical world that have rejected the household. I'm not talking about my books, yeah. but just the very institution. They've more or less reduced the household to a recreation center, and corporate economy has been baptized. Mm -hmm. So the most popular writers within evangelicalism are people who operate within the framework established by corporate interests. Right. And actually, Breakpoint today, and this will tell you, those of you who are out there listening, this will tell you what day we're recording this. Breakpoint today <laughs> was about um, families rejecting children. Mm. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm very encouraged by that because Breakpoint is one of those institutions which I think still has a presence in evangelicalism broadly. Mm -hmm. 
you know, we've, we know this, you know, within yeah. Protestantism, up until the 1930s, uh, any kind of birth control was considered sinful. Yeah. And nobody thinks that way today. I mean, I, when was the last time you heard some popular evangelical speaker address the subject of birth control? <laughs> That's right. You know? So, I mean, Tim Keller, I've said the name. <laughs> Has he ever mentioned the term? No, but in his book on marriage, he says virtually nothing about having children. There you go. There you go. And that's what, and, that, and that's my larger point. The people who build these megachurches are people who have bought into the kind of economy that makes those megachurches feasible. Okay, now let, let, let's throw out another idea here. Economic systems and political systems parallel each other. That's right, that's right. Because both of them are based on common assumptions about the natural relationship between people. Mm -hmm. So feudalism is accompanied by manorialism. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Representative government, particularly democratic republics, in the real sense of the word, not the communist sense of the word, right. Have as their natural corollary free market economics, what we would call capitalism. Right, right. Because there are similar principles that are at work at both of them. If you move towards socialism, that generates technocracy in government. Yes. So you get these technocratic governments. The move in that direction is going to be a move away from the household, away from small business, all of those kinds of things, and therefore away from republic. Yes. And away from representation, right. which, like I said, they, they, they just simply go together naturally. So the way to revitalize the republic is to move away from that socialist vision where you've got technocrats running things, promote small business, the productive household, all of those kinds of things, to produce virtue in the citizens so that they can actually make good decisions about who they're voting for. Now, this, this is where the bar sort of is introduced, in other words, the, the reason why this is not more popular. Yeah. <laughs> right. let, let me sort of just lay out why this is not more popular. First of all, virtue, that uh, the kind of virtue we're talking about here, which is a kind of risk-taking ownership virtue, the buck stops here kind of virtue. R responsibility, courage, self-sacrifice, mm -hmm. right. all of those is, kinds is, of things. It, 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 you know, you, have, you run the risk of failing and also uh, working hard and pain. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so those things, and then also it, it mitigates against sexual libertinism. Yeah. Now, sexual libertinism is the death of the household. Yeah. Think about it this way, and this is one of the ways that, you know, so there's so many sort of commonsensical things. In other words, much of our, much of the, the world that's been lost seems incoherent or incomprehensible or, or irrational to us because we have lost touch with sort of the base sort of values that that give it its rationality. So for example, if if you have an understanding of the household as a going concern, then inheritance is huge. Huge. It's about the transfer of productive property from one generation to the next. What is the most what is the most likely threat to that? Well it's sexual infidelity because sexual infidelity introduces to a household arrangement a claimant to property 
who is outside the legitimate you know, transfer of property. The official line of succession. Right. Yeah. Now, you might say that, well, legally, the, 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 the legitimate heirs are safe, but not at an emotional level. At an emotional level, uh, the, the patriarch or the matriarch might have bonds that have been developed over time, emotional bonds, that compromise the interests of the, of the legitimate children. Now, this whole way of thinking just appalls modern people. Because modern people, it's all about feeling good, yeah. emotions. Well, self-chosen relationships that yeah. are completely libertarian, right. not right. governed by anything other than what's in it for the, the particular yeah. individual. So what and, and things like the baby mama, the baby daddy, yeah. you know, yeah. even that kind of vocabulary. Yeah. So what you have is a couple of huge things to get over for many people. Many people are sexually enslaved to their passions. And many people would love to have somebody else take care of them, have other people take responsibility for them and just sort of run the show. Like, you know, the old saying, Greyhound, leave the driving to us. You just sit back and just enjoy the ride. If you've ever been in the Greyhound, you know that's an incomprehensible statement. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> but anyway. I wasn't gonna go there, but. <laughs> but you see, see, that's the challenge that we face. To inculcate these virtues, we have, it's, only, it's like we're in a sand trap, or it's like we're, we're trying to walk uphill on an, ice, on an icy sidewalk. Yeah. We have all of this sort of momentum, or all this uh, inertia, or all this, this uh, intractability that causes us to fail to kind of get past these things. Yeah. So it's almost as though you need complete systems, system collapse before people are able to Except, yeah. you know, I have to take responsibility for myself. And I think, I think, interestingly, it was figures like you know the the new left and Marcuse and figures like that that were they were they were attuned that that what made, for example, um, the 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 radical productivity of a country like the U.S. in the modern world was its the, the connectedness it still had to the Christian legacy of family right, and right. home life, uh, productive right. households. And so there was a deliberate attempt with the sexual revolution and the like to, to kind of pull the rug from under that and because they, they understood the connection to that to, to particular economies they didn't like, mm -hmm. you know, being, being kind of neo-Marxist. So they understood the relationship between the households, the economy, and the society in ways that they deliberately sought ways to infuse it with something that would, would undermine it. Right. And, and yet, if you look at um, India, um, the Hindus in India actually passed a law um, insisting on monogamy. Yeah, and the, and the reason they did that, this is according to uh, Vishal Mangawadi, the reason why they did that is they looked at the success of Western cultures mm -hmm. and said the foundation for this is the successful household. Yeah. And that can only be done in a... I'm all set. In, yeah. Okay. Yep. That can only be done in a setting of monogamy. Right, right. Yeah, so this is just reinforcing what, what, what you're saying here. Right. I guess... Another dimension to this, and as I think about the evangelical world, is I look at uh, some of the young people that I've come across who are enamored with kind of uh, sort of trendy ways of thinking and, and uh, 
we've talked about you know certain social movements. You yeah. know, uh, I, I think that what they're enamored with is sort of the uh, the the the. the, 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 the the, the cachet or the uh, the status that one enjoys yeah. when you embrace a certain kind of outlook. Yeah. Uh, there's, you know, the idea that, uh, you know, when we talk about virtue signaling, there are a certain set of values that are actually uh, signals that you belong to the elite. Yeah. It's not, in other words, we're not dealing with genuine conviction. We're dealing with a kind of uh, desire to belong to an in, sort of an insider group. Yeah. And what we're describing here is a kind of tacit wisdom and a sort of, a sort of uncelebrated wisdom that even the people who practice it don't understand. Yeah. You know, so I, I run across this all the time. When I, when I, 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 I see people who are living really solid, virtuous lives, but they don't understand. Yeah. They, they, they operate, they do things at a, uh, at, the, at a level that's uh, sentimental. Yeah. Uh, but they can't put it into the reasons into words. Yeah. They can't justify what they're doing uh, through some kind of, you know, cogent, rational argument. Yeah. Instead, it's just sort of knee-jerk reaction to the latest absurdity or the latest, uh, you know, sort of a, uh, you know, crazy event that they watched in the news and say, can you believe this? Uh, so what, what we lack in our society today is a spokesman. We do have some, but, but they've not acquired the kind of uh, social stature. Yeah. That anybody's willing to sort of sort of rally around, you know, we have a few, I think, shining stars. A person like Robert George, you know, a guy at Princeton yep. that we all admire. Yeah. Uh, now, you know, Dr. George is focused pretty narrowly, I think, on certain family yeah. issues. He's a very sharp guy. Yeah. But outside, he's also it, a very nice guy. I don't yeah. know if oh, you've I've ever met, met him. him. Yeah, yeah, I've met he's, him. Yeah, he's a wonderful man. Yeah. yeah, I agree with you. But he's not a uh, Nice in a positive sense. Oh, I not, <laughs> not in Latin. Right. Yeah, not in the episode uh, we just uh, finished up. Yeah, yeah no, no, he's actually throwing furniture around in rooms. So yeah, I, 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 we've, we've talked about that. But, um, but you know, I guess you know what I'm getting at. When you've got young people within evangelicalism who are posing or sort of wanting to be, you know, uh, they, they want to, they want to, want to be accepted and they want to be sophisticated. Yeah. Thank, you. Thank you. They're not looking to their parents, even though their parents may be living much more solid lives. We know this. Yeah. You know, we know this. We've, we've been in, a, in, a, in within academia, a lot of people who are, you know, well-respected in their fields have just totally messed up lives. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, I was one of them at one point. And the thing is, as I do, I do. I think you start, you become detached from the rest of the world, but you start to believe a lot of the nonsense that yeah, yeah. that each, you know, your the little subculture you're a part of starts to foster about yeah, it. There, yeah, there are right. some ideas that yeah. are so stupid that only an academic could believe them. And they would, they, and they hold to it within that, in right. that 
And yet there are always these strange anomalies that show up. I, I, this is one of my favorite. I, I had a, a friend um, that I knew, she was from Poland, and grew up in a very solid Catholic background, but she was an atheist, yeah, or yeah. self-professed atheist. She yeah. read Nietzsche very She lived content. like a Catholic, but said you were That's right, atheist. but you'll love this. So I said, well, why don't you come, I invited her. I said, why don't you come over to Christ Church Cathedral with me, my professor John Webster speaks over there. She said, oh, no, I can't. And I'm like, I was thinking, you know, atheism. No, they have women priests. <laughs> oh, God. So, so if I'm going to have anything to do with Christianity, it's going to be the real thing. It's going to be the real deal. At least wow. I appreciate consistency. Right, <laughs> right, right. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Isn't that great? But, yeah. I, you know, yeah. we've all experienced this. I mean, I've been in the homes of uh, very liberal people, and what I mean by liberal is that uh, they've written books that everybody would say that was something that was advocating liberalism, or they vote for liberal progressivists. But when you get into their lives, and you get into their homes, they're about as conventionally uh, Norman Rockwell-esque as you can imagine. (laughs) They're not... Thank you. They're not... (laughs) They're not the crazy... People that you know you read about at, at the Antifa, that's right. You know, sort of a rally or whatever. Yeah, that that, that merits its own episode. <laughs> well, yeah, it, it, yeah. There there are lots of examples of that sort of thing historically. So in in England, um, Gladstone, the liberal, was very solidly conservative in his lifestyle. Yeah. Whereas yeah. Disraeli, the conservative, yeah. was absolutely flamboyant. Right. I mean, Immanuel Kant. I mean, he yeah. undermined the whole classic Christian vision and basically opened the door to what would eventually become, li- you know, radical libertinism and hedonism. But. He himself was one of the most prudish human beings. They said he, at night he would wrap himself in a white sheet just to make sure he didn't like position himself in an unhealthy way. He was an he was a very he was a moralist in a very yeah, strange right. sense of the word. Well, yeah, if you have any acquaintance with the old Brahmins in Boston, that yeah. that reflects that whole outlook. I mean, yeah. I uh, I, uh, I have family that <laughs> tell stories, <laughs> but I won't. <laughs> Yeah. But uh, anyway, uh, well, this is, uh, I, I think that, you know, this, this subject of Machiavelli and his uh, quest to uh, make a prince who worked himself out of a job <laughs> is tremendously relevant to us. Uh, we're dealing with that, that thing right now. Yeah. Uh, we have a prince in uh, President Trump. And for many people, we're, we're dealing with is a uh, lesser of two evils kind of thing. We we, we know that uh, his his enemies hate us. Yeah. And uh, really would would uh, enjoy watching us uh, kind of just sort of cease to exist. They would just like to see us fade out, like in the old like in the old movies. You know, at the very end where you got the big screen and then you got this. <laughs> This uh, circle that just constricts to the point that it just disappears. They 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 really want us to disappear like that. Even though they don't realize the consequence of doing right. it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And right. If I may add to that, one of the problems that we face with Trump is frankly 
the guy is, we've always argued for the importance of morality yeah. in leaders, and Trump is not exactly a paragon of virtue. Yeah. Yeah. And I really wish he would shut up occasionally. Sure, sure. <laughs> but, but having said that, if Machiavelli's analysis has any bearing at all on reality, right. sometimes you need a really aggressive, yeah. nasty person right. to step in right. to give you, the, at the very least, to give you the breathing space that you need to develop a more virtuous society, not on the model of the despot but on the model of cl the classical concept of, of, of virtue or even a Machiavellian concept of virtue. And I think also what he does, because he does have a certain kind, what other, I don't care what other, whether people see it or not, he's a guy who understands that he built a lot of things yeah. himself. Right. And looking at political leaders who have sold the country out in mm -hmm. order to gain the same access to wealth and power that they never put their hand to a plow right. or had to manage anything other than kind of utilizing their advantage as an elected official. Right. So as he starts to pull the rug from under all this and expose the fraud of this so-called elite mm -hmm. for what it is by actually getting wealth by selling the country, in his view, yeah. Um, yeah. he's being, he's basically in the, he's basically hitting a beehive, and he's having to take the aggression um, of everyone who has been benefiting from that, I think, within all of the, yeah. the yeah. levels of lead. And he's lead. the kind of guy who relishes that. <laughs> well, because he's Achilles. Yeah, he's because Achilles. he's Achilles. He's Achilles. Yeah. But uh, I think that, thank you. Thank I you. think that uh, when we think about him, I think one of the things that uh, is distressing to me is that... Right. I'm all set. I think that you know we're, what we're dealing with in the evangelical world is uh, you know a, a group of prudes who have a hard time dealing with kind of the facts on the ground, Machiavellian mm -hmm. facts. Mm -hmm. Right. What what they do is they live in a kind of fantasy land, yeah. and uh, because you know the prince doesn't sort of fit into that fantasy land. They make common cause with the people that hate their guts. Yeah. Right. And the fact is Machiavelli has got, you know, when you look at him, he presents a prince that is totally amoral, mm -hmm. that actually uses religion for his own purposes. Right. And everything that, you know, all of the things that Christian critics of Trump accuse him of, whether he's guilty of them or not, I don't know. But all the things that the critics of Trump accuse him of doing are things Machiavelli says, frankly, you got to do right. if you're going to get the Republic back. Right, yeah. right. It's, so, I mean, it's, so those it's, bonds, it's, it's those imperfect bonds one has to have, and sometimes somebody who has a full-fledged Christian ethic couldn't work within those bonds because it ends up it ends up polluting them in ways. Yeah. Well, this, you know, this Jimmy, is Jimmy Carter was, yeah. is, is a wonderful man, a wonderful Christian man. I disagree with him on some points. I tend to think he's a nice, no, I'm just joking. <laughs> I think I'm, I'm, just joking. joking. But, I'm just joking. But he, he is somebody who is <laughs> serious really. about his faith and his work to try to live consistently with it. I think he's made some wrong decisions along the way, but he was a lousy president. Well, not only a lousy president, but apparently a lousy father, because if I look at his daughter, as any sort of product of a Christian household, I'd say he failed. Mm. But but I, I think though, getting back to my, to, this actually is kind of a tie-in. I think we're creating weak children in within the Christian world who can't deal with facts on the ground. 
the you know the Lord told us to be wise as serpent and as innocent as doves. Mm -hmm. I think we're about as wise as doves and as innocent as serpents. I think we we've completely reversed the, the whole thing, and I think many of the young people that we've we've raised because we've raised them in an extremely uh, sort of. Uh, bubble wrap environments where they don't have to actually deal with reality itself, they become too deferential. Now this sounds weird. They're too deferential. Hmm. Anyone who's an authority is, is good in their minds. Unless it's Trump. Unless it's him. That's right. So, so in other <laughs> words, they, they lack the ability to discern, yeah. to, to make this, the kinds of distinctions yeah. that I think are in their own interest in the in it. And, and what, what, I'm, what I'm saying here is that, let's, let's talk about Sam, second, first and second Samuel. Let's talk about first and second Kings. Let's talk about first and second Chronicles. Let's talk about Ezra. Let's talk about Nehemiah. Let's talk about all of that. Yeah. Esther. I went through this as a parent. I mean, with my, my youngest, um, he was having some you know, disruptions at class. He had some altercations with other kids. His Irish side was coming right, out. Right, right. And I remember, at first, I was stepping into that same pattern, saying basically, well, if you have an issue, don't just kind of you know, knock the other one. You know, talk to the teacher. And then I was like, wait a minute, I'm teaching him to, def de to defer to an authority to resolve issues for him that he's going to have to learn how to resolving them himself. That's right. That's and right. then I kind of, I backed away from that, but it was one of those kind of lessons I, it, where you think you're, you're kind of creating someone who, who is a good, um, kind of a virtuous person trying to resolve things in, in a very good way with someone not learning how to resolve them at all. That's right. But really defer that to someone else to fix it for them. And, that, and that's why I think that many of them idolize Obama, idolize the smooth-talking, smooth-over artist yeah. who is really good at sort of uh, mollifying things, yeah. you know, people and, and, and failing to deal with the hard realities. So, like when I think of Obama, I think of a guy who wants everybody to be happy. Everybody's happy. You know, and I think that what we need is, is the sort of guy right now who's saying, you know what, there's some people who need to be very unhappy right now. <laughs> and I'm going to tell you who they are. <laughs> and uh, this Biden clan, you yeah. know, they need to be unhappy. Because I, I have a sense of what they've been up to. Yeah. So, when's the last time a president lost uh, you know, net worth yeah. in our country? They've all come in, in my lifetime, yeah. being uh, sort of marginal and leaving extremely wealthy. Yeah. Trump has reversed the, the order. Yeah. <laughs> He's right. losing money every day. Yeah. Yeah. Or how is it that congressmen who have a $175,000 a year salary end up leaving as multimillionaires? Yeah. Or how right. you have communists running for president yeah. uh, and, right. and a welfare state who, who are have exploited the system to unparalleled degrees. Bernie yeah. Sanders, Elizabeth Warren. Yeah. Their, their moral platitudes are nothing but that for anyone who yeah, actually has an intelligible moral sense. They're despicable people. They are. And I think that you know, one of the things that we have within evangelicalism is the nice guyism. The nice guyism which says we don't make waves and anyone who makes waves is a bad person. Yeah. Right. So uh, we've got a lot of smooth over artists now, when we look back at the Bible, or we look back at the early church, or we look back at the Reformation, tell me, when you think of Luther, yeah. was he a nice guy? Was he a smooth talker? When we look at Christostom, yeah. 
when we look at Athanasius, when we look at the Apostle Paul, these guys were creating riots. <laughs> yeah, and if you have any doubts about Luther, those of you out there in podcast land, I want to encourage you to look up the Lutheran Insulter. That's right. That should be mandatory just, reading just, for every evangelical. Just, right. just, do a, just do a Google search for it, and you'll find out what Luther had to say about some of the people he had disagreements with. That's right. In fact, you know, if I read some of his sermons from my pulpit, I would lose my pulpit. Yeah. Interestingly, Karl Barth, the Swiss Reformed theologian of a previous generation, he loved reading Luther, but he felt Luther was so scandalous he would hide him behind his books behind a chair as if they were dirty magazines. <laughs> they were just that kind of to that kind of Swiss mind it's at such the time. An indulgence, were, indulging were, my, my yeah. lower self, lower base self. Yeah. <laughs> See, but but the point is, all right. Now now think about think about this in terms of Machiavelli again. Sooner or later, I am going to bring us back to topic. <laughs> um, <laughs> think, think about this in terms of Machiavelli. What did the church need? at that point. Yeah, 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 yeah. What the church needed wasn't a Lefebvre d'Etat, who right. came up with many of the same ideas Luther did theologically, but he was a nice guy. Yeah. He was smooth, mm -hmm. he was, you know, he got along well with people, he, you know, he did all of these things. Now, he got into a certain amount of controversy, but that was after Luther. Yeah. Yeah. Luther created problems for Lefebvre. It, you know, Erasmus maybe might have made something happen, but what you really needed, the thing that really was essential at that point, was somebody with the Terminator, a, 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 a Machiavellian <laughs> sense of virtue. Yeah, I would, I would argue along those lines that, yeah, that's a reason why Calvin wasn't picked and Luther was to do that very thing. Yeah, yeah, what you need is a dirty Harry. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I was going to say someone with cojones. Yes, I mean, <laughs> you know, or the or the angel of death. You know, yeah. like I, I've presented this earlier. <laughs> that uh, my, my I have a theory about Dirty Harry. <laughs> Dirty Harry is the is the avenging Christ. <laughs> if you watch the original Dirty Harry, all through it there are there are uh, you know symbolic sort of uh, scenes. Yeah. That are that are almost embarrassingly obvious. Yeah. You know the, the the scene where where Harry is on the roof on the stakeout, you know, looking for the, the the murderer. What's rotating above his head? A neon sign that says Jesus saves. Yeah. And throughout the film, whenever the the uh, the bad guy, the the, mass, the murderer, the the crazed, sexually sort of perverted killer, uh, sees Harry, what does he say? Jesus Christ. Mm. <laughs> Every time he shows up, there's Harry, Jesus mm. Christ. <laughs> and then the time that, that Harry is beaten by this crazed nut job, what's he, what, where is it? It's underneath the cross. It's at the foot of the cross. Harry takes the, the punishment yeah. to save the, the, the girl that's been, you know, uh, buried in the ground. He's delivering her from the tomb. He suffers to deliver her from the tomb. But anyway, Harry is dirty. <laughs> He's not a nice guy. Right, yeah. So, I guess the point here for me is we need to really think about seriously the, the, what, it, what is necessary for a republic to survive. Right. Because- Well, how do we get it back? Historically, 
Everybody who has written about republics says that virtue is an absolute necessity. Without virtue, republics die. Yeah. We are not in a virtuous society. What do we need to do to reestablish re virtue, to develop virtue within the society? What kind of institutions do we need? I suggested small business and household economy are, are critical elements of this. But what, what institutions do we need to promote? How do we get somebody in place that will allow us to do that, to promote small well, business? I, th I, do, think, I do think we have somebody in, in, you know, in power right now who, who's interested in that. Right. I, I, and, and I would say that we actually have people working against it in evangelicalism. Mm -hmm. I would agree. You know? So the, the point here is that in a lot of ways, I suppose, if you're going to apply this to the American political situation now, what Trump is doing is actually the sorts of things that Machiavelli advocated, yeah. but he is doing it, whether he's doing it for the right reasons or not, I can't judge. But these are the necessary steps that have to be in place if we're going to preserve a republic. Right, right. And he, and he is uh, a figure is putting the spoke in the wheel of, of a, a very naive leftism that has far more injustice in its wings. Oh, yeah. Um, These people are bad. They're bad. And, they're, and, they're, and, and it's either, like you said, a, a, a radical episode of delusion or, uh, you know, as uh, what Jesus once said in the, in, if you translate that aspect of the gospel in, in crass Greek is, are you people being stupid willfully? I mean, that kind of... <laughs> right, right. Or as a friend of mine says, were you born this stupid or did you have to practice? <laughs> right. Well, we should start wrapping, we should wrap things yeah. up here. Just, just, just sure. one other quick comment for me to, to end this. Right, right. We may have a little bit of time. Uh -huh. The tide is going to turn against us at some point. If yeah. Trump gets another term, great. It buys us a few more years, but it's going to reverse. I agree. So now is the time right. that we need to be thinking really seriously about developing virtue, right. developing these kinds of household economies, developing character. I've said multiple times, working with students who come through the public school system, that homeschoolers are going to rule the world. Yeah. We need to do the same thing, not just in schools, but more broadly, to develop the kinds of people who can govern themselves, because we don't have that in the country right now. And we need people who know the difference between virtue and niceness. Right, exactly. Because I think that we're producing a lot of nice kids. Which explains the Logos Center. <laughs> so, so in any event, that, that was really what's behind me suggesting this topic for the day. Oh, I think it's been a great topic. Anything yeah. you want to add, Tom, before no, we wrap No, I up? think we can explore some of the, the kind of implications at other, other times, but I think we addressed a, a lot of the the uh, things that were on my mind. Well, that's good stuff. Nate, me too. I've said everything I had to say. Anyway, thanks for joining us once again at the Theology Podcast. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye, Bye. Now.